2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash
0: This is a signal that the world is anticipating the end of the reserve currency era and trying to find all possible options to hedge against the risk and the turmoil that will be created in global trading as it becomes more and more difficult to continue to use the US dollar because of the way the US government has exercised its power there.
1: Hey folks, on today's episode we'll be discussing a simple but critically important topic. In the beginning, way back in 2009, there were traditional currencies like the dollar, alternative or community currencies like Ithaca Hours, and just one cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. But what a difference a decade can make. Today, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies, many created by enthusiasts who have ideas on how to make something even better than Bitcoin, but also currencies that use some of the technology that makes Bitcoin so powerful, but pair it with the authority of a national government like the digital yuan in China, Or even a globe-spanning corporation with billions of customers like the Libra, backed by Facebook and still not released. In this emerging picture, is Bitcoin still interesting? First attempts at new technology, even when successful at introducing powerful new ideas, are often not the ones which eventually succeed in changing everything. And importantly, as the world changes and we get closer to something other than a dollar standard, where does Bitcoin fit? Today, I'm joined as always by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session. Today's episode is sponsored by Crypto.com, Nexo.io, and Elliptic.co. So with all of that said, let's get into it. There are a couple of angles I think are worth talking about, but Stephanie, let's start with you. What's the point of a global reserve currency, currently the dollar? What's it supposed to do in a perfect world, and how did the dollar end up as it?
2: Well, think about what happened in the days of bartering. If you wanted to do business in a local economy that was based on barter, where essentially all kinds of things, chickens and hammers and hay and whatever else, were standing in as money, as a medium of exchange. Well, that's one function of money. But when all these different things could be the medium of exchange, it was definitely weird figuring out how to barter 10 chickens for an ox or whatever. And then you ended up with a little bit of surplus because what if the item that you're trading is worth nine and a half chickens? And then you have to kind of give that person credit and remember it. And that really only works in a small community. I was watching a documentary recently about the Puritans in early America before it was America. And they were actually doing that. They had these written ledgers of like, okay, I traded 10 chickens with Ezekiel on this day and he owes me a little bit extra. And then They were just keeping track of these really complicated things. And, you know, obviously this was before the times of computers and social media. And so you have to keep that all in your head. And what if there's a fire and your barn burns down and then you don't remember who owes who what. So I'm talking about an example that happens in a small community. But fast forward to a world that's globally connected. We don't just trade with Ezekiel down the street anymore for 10 chickens. We are international economies people all over the world trade with other people all over the world. And as do companies and corporations and nation states and all kinds of other entities. And so how do we do that? You know, how do we make it as less confusing as possible? And the answer to that is having sort of a universal medium of exchange, which is a global reserve currency. And it's like, okay, we're going to take the friction and cost out of these transactions. And the cost would come from converting currencies and doing the math and trying to figure out exactly how do you convert one nation state's currency to another one. And it may not seem like a lot, but it does add an amount of friction. But if there's a convention where everyone agrees they're going to do business in a certain currency, that becomes the reserve currency and it just makes things a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a language, right? Like it's really valuable to be able to speak the same language as people who are near you. But if you want to talk to someone who's in a different town, a different country, then, you know, I mean, we've seen throughout history that languages tend to become more valuable to know as more people know them because it's simply more useful. It seems like it's the same thing with money. And then on the other side of kind of that utility equation, what's the point of a currency or a global reserve currency? A lot of times it's about saving money, right? If you're in a country that doesn't necessarily have a stable financial system or you don't have money that's being managed very well, then sometimes it can be really attractive to do business in a currency that is outside the control of your local government, who you don't think is doing a good job of managing it. And so that's kind of another way that these global reserve currencies not just emerge, but kind of find value.
0: I think it's more the second, really. The medium of exchange isn't really that big of an issue. Theoretically, at least, you could just trade in any one of the global national currencies and just do the exchange rate calculations that's not a big problem the bigger problem is reserve and reserve really speaks to the store value aspect of this you see the thing is in order to be able to continuously trade you need liquidity and in order to have liquidity you need to have reserves of currency and then the question becomes which currency do you use for the reserves and that choice becomes a lot more about trust stability of issuance and political geopolitical pressure whether a global norm can be enforced at the end of the day what that means is geopolitical consensus rules and geopolitical consensus rules are enforced by violence that's the bottom line
3: and if you look at the history of what's considered global currencies it Pretty much seems that whatever nation has the largest military at the time magically ends up being the global reserve currency in that area. So you go back far enough, and it was Rome, and you look at every era, and it's basically he who has the largest army just seems to be the largest trading partner and seems to be the global reserve currency. My second favorite thing to point out here is that. Global reserve currencies tend to have two things in common. One, a nation who's the most powerful, or arguably the most powerful at the time. And two, they always abuse that power, both militarily and economically. So I like to tell people, if you look at a quarter, they have faces on them because we all pretend that they're Roman silver coins. and. The ridges on a coin are two and a half thousand year old anti-Roman counterfeiting measures because the moment the Romans had something backed by silver, they thought, well, what if I put slightly less silver in it? And so inflation is sort of the language of anything of reserve currencies. And like all things, they seem to not last very long.
0: Yeah, it's not just counterfeiting. It's actually because people would shave off the edges. If it was made of silver, they just basically trim it. And the ridges are there to prevent non-visible tampering and trimming of the silver. So you can basically take a coin that was minted correctly, but then trim off the edges and keep some of it yourself.
1: Right. If you take those ridges and you shave them off, that whole ridge mechanism is what you call in the modern era a tamper-evident protection. So I appreciate all of that as context. I want to go back just a little bit, Andres, to something that you said, specifically talking about reserves, right? Right. And I think the idea of reserves these days, you're right, the vast majority of sort of reserves are held in U.S. dollars. But historically, reserves were something that was almost inherently tied to gold. Even though there were different reserve currencies, those currencies typically had a tie to gold. And it was really only in the 70s that that tie was broken and we became a sort of world where... Rather than storing some sort of more liquid representation of gold, you know, in the form of a national reserve currency, instead we were just storing the national reserve currency, which had no inherent connection and was no longer really tied back at all to it.
0: Yeah, and that's because President Nixon at the time refused to honor the obligations of the United States and transfer gold to other countries' reserve banks in order to settle bilateral obligations and currency trades. So until then, everything was settled in gold, but that means literally settled in gold. That means you load up a ship, barge, or train, and you move gold from one country to another to settle bilateral trade. And in 1971, Nixon ended the ability of other countries to deposit dollars and get gold shipped back to them in return for bilateral trade, and that became the end of the gold era. Now, the US dollar acting as a global reserve has another darker aspect to it, which is that this happened simultaneously with a Faustian deal between Henry Kissinger and the Saudis that established a coalition whereby Americans would provide military support for the Saudi regime and its satellite states in return for a deal that the Saudis would only accept US dollars for the purchase of oil now given that at the time other oil producing countries didn't have the capacity to compete with saudi arabia and the gulf states this effectively meant that the us dollar became reserve currency because it was the only legal tender effectively for purchasing oil everybody needs oil If the Saudis only accept dollars, you need to have dollars, which means you need to store dollars. And if you're storing dollars for oil, you might as well use them for international trade. And that established the dollar as the global reserve. So it's a two-step process. One, deprecate gold. Two, make a devil's deal to prop up a theocratic, murderous dictatorship, even when they bomb our own towers, by supporting their dictatorship through military support from the Americans. In return for supporting the currency. Now, that compact is effectively broken. Now, there are a number of countries that coincidentally get invaded just after they start accepting any other currency than dollars to sell their oil. And the only ones that don't get invaded are the ones that either have nukes or have a big enough military to resist invasion. Iran now accepts Chinese yuan and rubles for oil. And that's beginning to break the hegemonic dominance of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. We are nearing the end of the era. First, the empire declines. Then the empire continues to abuse its currency privilege long past it can actually support that position. And then eventually, even that control breaks and something else emerges. Of course, the question is, how long does that take after the decline of empire and what else? can possibly emerge to replace the dollar as
1: reserve currency. So I want to stay on this gold thing for just a minute, because I actually think in continuing to think about this and listening to you talk about it, I think that one of the things perhaps that I didn't really realize before this conversation is that the global reserve currency, you know, Jonathan, you tied it to empire. And I think that that's true. But I think that empire is almost a kind of proxy for measuring how much gold <laughs> one of these empires actually has, because that military might historically has meant that you could go and develop new areas and find more gold, or you can go to war with someone and you know effectively take their gold. And so it seems like in a very real way, for most of history where we've had these reserve currencies, the reserve currency really has just been a proxy for gold. And the mechanism by which a reserve currency has been lost Is in overreaching. These governments no longer have a dominant position. Their liabilities outweigh their assets to the point where someone else becomes the sort of dominant position in gold, maybe not numerically, maybe just from a trust standpoint because of that whole liabilities versus assets thing.
0: Not just a proxy for gold, because keep in mind, until the modern era, the 20th century, when we're talking about, for example, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Portuguese, or the Spanish Empire, The currency itself was gold, gold coins. So it wasn't a proxy. It wasn't a proxy until the modern era. It was actual gold. And so the ability to mint actual gold coins, or in some cases silver, but that experiment didn't work very well. That was the reserve currency.
1: So then in the modern era, these effectively became represented as paper. And then when Nixon broke the peg and we moved from a gold-backed dollar to an oil-backed dollar, not really backed, but you know what I mean, like that's kind of the thing that's driving the value behind it, that was a meaningful departure from the last several hundred years of history.
0: Well, which is why that breakpoint in 1971 also represents the beginning of major structural changes throughout the economy with a huge ramping up of inflation, a huge extension of tax inequality, a huge extension of debt, a huge extension of debt financing for war, and much more financing for war, all stem back to that one decision. It basically unleashed the ability of governments to spend beyond their means.
1: Obviously, nobody knows how this is going to shake out. How disruption manifests in real life is really hard to predict. But at this point, we do at least know what appear to be the different paths that this thing could take if some sort of cryptographically secure digital money is our future. So, Andreas, I'd like to throw this one to you to start us off. You've got privately issued, you know, literally anybody can do it cryptocurrencies. You've got so-called corpo coins like the Libra. You've got national digital currencies like we see coming out of China. And then you've got things like Bitcoin. So, like, what are kind of the attributes of these different things? What are the strengths and the weaknesses of each approach? Or perhaps I'll ask it a different way. What could actually work? And what do we know won't?
0: Well, I'd like to just take a brief step back and say, you know, even though the US has abused its position in the dollar, and even though there are a lot of contenders for the kind of multi-pronged geopolitical power structure, that doesn't mean the US dollar is anywhere near losing its position as reserve currency. It may lose some of its control. But the problem is that there is no good alternative in traditional currencies, not the yuan, not the ruble. The politics there are too fraught to get it. One likely contender is not a cryptocurrency or digital currency at all, but is some form of synthetic currency built and managed by the International Monetary Fund. So some kind of SDR-based synthetic basket currency that is constructed, which may or may not have a blockchain. It's kind of unnecessary. It would be a centralized currency that emerges to replace the dollar. But again, you know, the IMF isn't an independent organization either. And the problem is there's a vacuum right now in terms of something to replace the U.S. dollar. And so we might end up with a brief period where, in fact, there are a number of competing monetary and payment systems because it's not just the reserve currency, it's also the payment system. The U.S. dollar as reserve currency goes hand in hand with SWIFT as the international wire transfer settlement and payment system. And control of both gives the U.S. enormous geopolitical power. Now, Europe and China have tried to build alternative versions of SWIFT. So they can bypass controls that the U.S. imposes unilaterally. A great example of that would be the embargo on Iran, which Europe and many other countries under the previous agreements have essentially allowed Iran to sell oil. And yet the U.S. continues to maintain an embargo and has backed out of its treaty obligations. So in that particular case, there's a need for an alternative payment system. The payment system going hand-in-hand with the reserve currency actually gives us a hint as to the importance of blockchains in this space. Because a blockchain is simultaneously a payment system and a currency, and the consensus rules govern both. Now, whether a nation-state could make a central digital currency, CBDC as it's called, Whether a corporate currency could survive or whether it would be some form of cryptocurrency that emerges to fill that vacuum, I mean, that's a really loaded question. And I don't think any of us can answer it right now. I think what's going to happen is we're going to simply end up in a world where there's a lot more fragmentation. The dollar will continue to work for some things. The yuan and euro will work for other things. There will be Libra and other corporate currencies. There will be central bank digital currencies like digital yuan or digital euro and there'll be cryptocurrencies, and we're going to enter a period of massive fragmentation where things are going to be complicated, and there's going to be more limited liquidity, more complications in trade, and more exchanges happening across all of these different forms.
1: At the beginning of this episode, we talked very briefly about how one of the sort of use cases of a global reserve currency is to store value in some form other than the one that your government has control over. And we've seen this sort of throughout history with different episodes of heavy inflation, even hyperinflation in some cases, where the money that people think that they've saved and have simply goes down in value and can buy less effectively at the end of it. That, I think, is a really important part of this conversation. And I have increasingly been thinking that lacking an alternative— Lacking a system that actually has neutrality built in as a base level assumption, you're looking around for what's the best option of all of these bad options, right? Because again, like using the U.S. government's money as your reserve currency when you're in Zimbabwe, well, that's much better than using Zimbabwe's hyperinflating currency. But on the other hand, the U.S. isn't in a great situation either. It's essentially the cleanest, dirty shirt. One of the things that I've really been curious about with regards to these central bank digital currencies, as you said, so-called CBDCs, is whether or not these could behave like a truly neutral system, or whether we're just talking about taking the existing very slanted system, which is in favor of whichever country has sort of, as it's called, the exorbitant privilege of being able to just essentially write blank checks that you don't have any money to back up, which then people use as their own form of savings in their local country. You know, Whether that changes the equation here, whether having something like Bitcoin that, although it's neutral and available for use by everyone, can't be influenced, as we used to say a lot more, you can't hold a gun to the head of math, right? Like there's some protection that's built into that neutrality. And I just wonder if that's something that we could ever see or that any government would ever allow to happen in a nationally issued central bank digital currency.
0: I mean, the simple answer, in my opinion, is no, that will never happen. And the only reason we'll see change in this space is because it doesn't matter what the governments will do if a number, uh, a percentage of their population simply choose to also use cryptocurrency as a long-term store of value in addition to their local and national currency, their surveilled and controlled central bank digital currency or whatever else they offer. This isn't really about which system dominates. It's about what choices people have. And if people have choices and they choose to exercise some of those choices and can exercise them in a safe way, then what you end up is in a multi-currency world where people use their digital yuan because they don't really have a choice because they get paid in it, et cetera, et cetera. But they also squirrel away and save in another uncontrolled, informal currency like Bitcoin or other digital currency. That gives them a stronger store value, monetary consensus neutrality platform to base their wealth on. Central bank digital currencies cannot and will never compete with that. Corporate currencies cannot and will never compete with that because they will not have any of the characteristics of these open systems. They cannot. And so really, it's just a matter of choice. And people will choose to use whatever they need to use under the current prevailing context of their local environment.
3: And I think the most discreet action that a reserve currency has is that you hold it in reserve. So specifically, you purchase a bunch that you retain because you know that you'll need it as a trading pair to engage in commerce with another. And so as we look to non-nation state backed currencies, I think that's the activity that we could look at most strongly to see how far Bitcoin is coming along in becoming a quote unquote reserve currency. Square just announced today that they're purchasing or have purchased 50 million in Bitcoin. And that's great because I'm assuming they're going to need it for a bunch of trading pairs. And so, you know, it's substantively different to say, you know, we're accepting Bitcoin, we immediately sell it on BitPay and they give us dollars versus what an actual reserve currency is, which is we bought a bunch of this to hold in reserve as a trading pair because we intend to do that much business in it. And the more we see of that, the more. Things like Bitcoin will genuinely become reserve currencies.
1: This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com Metal Card, which pays you up to 8% cash back on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today.
2: In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. Introducing Elliptic, the preferred crypto compliance partner for businesses who want to grow with confidence. The busiest compliance teams rely on Elliptic's rigorous blockchain monitoring solutions to scale up and save money. Protect your customers manage your risk scale your business visit elliptic.co coindesk to talk to a crypto compliance expert today that's elliptic.co coindesk
0: we have to not underestimate gold in all of this because gold has not gone away as a reserve currency in fact if anything if you look at what countries say versus what they do if you look at what they do a lot of countries are stockpiling gold like crazy right now. And in fact, they're using all kinds of shell companies and intermediaries, et cetera, to stock gold in a way that is not immediately visible. China has been doing that. Russia has been doing that. A whole bunch of countries have been stockpiling gold. So, you know, it has not escaped notice that this is happening. And this is happening in parallel with everything else. So, in a multipolar world where the foundation of a US dollar reserve currency is going away, one of the things we got to realize is that for most countries, the geopolitical price that they have to pay of US hegemony is a small price to pay to have a global, liquid, stable, rules based framework in which to trade. The US is, through its actions, destroying a system the rest of the world needs. And so in missing that, there is no good alternative.
2: So are you saying that gold is kind of the closest thing because it is a store of value and it's a trusted store of value that stood the test of time?
0: Yes. And so this is a signal that the world is anticipating the end of the reserve currency era and trying to find all possible options to hedge against the risk and the turmoil that will be created in global trading. As it becomes more and more difficult to continue to use the US dollar because of the way the US government has exercised its power there.
2: The thing about gold, though, is that it really doesn't function as a medium of exchange.
0: Yes, which for a reserve currency isn't a huge problem because what you do is you do eventual settlement in very large quantities. You're not sending the actual gold. What you need to do is prove you have reserves exchange certificates and settle over a longer period of time by literally filling a barge and moving it and that's not a huge problem at a country level you only have a handful of trading partners and gold is moved internationally all the time the bigger problem which has continued to be an issue is proving the reserve so if you have an asset-backed system like gold then you lie about how much you have in reserve, and you issue more certificates than you actually have. Effectively, that's what the dollar did in the 1970s.
3: Right. Or specifically with gold in China this year, where 83 tons of gold turned out to basically be a tin can that was painted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the real problem. It's the forgeability, the verifiability, the auditability characteristics of these things. And ironically, that's something that a blockchain can solve. so if you have audited reserves and then you represent these with tokens on an immutable blockchain, you can have some control and transparency over that auditing and then not be able to just issue more anytime you want.
3: but I think that also you know presupposes the concept of auditing because there are some countries that refuse gap, and there are some countries that refuse you know unqualified audits so once you get back to hey, at least we know in this country, they have some form of audit trail for their reserve currency to, hey, let's trust someone else's statements as to the gold balances that they have that use fundamentally different auditing practices than we have. I think you've just reinvented the desire to switch back to like a US dollar or something.
0: Which is exactly the point. As Adam said, you know, it's the dirtiest shirt available, which makes it clean. This is the bottom line, which is that, If it weren't for the United States trying to use a regime of sanctions and political manipulation and geopolitics against various other countries and various forms of cold wars through currency wars, the rest of the world is quite happy, for the most part, to have a stable world reserve currency in the form of the dollar as long as it's relatively neutral. The U.S. is the one that's breaking the neutrality, and the rest of the world is going like, what are you doing, guys? This has worked, and you get a premium for it. Why are you breaking the one thing that works for everybody? And that's the irony of it all, because there is no good alternative. And the real alternative is fragmentation, uncertainty, chaos, and difficulty in trading.
1: Right. We've talked about it extensively before, but the interesting part about sort of monopolies is that they really do sort of incentivize their own demise. Not even incentivize, that's the wrong word. Precipitate. Yeah, that precipitate their own demise, right? Like the ability for the U.S. to control sort of the swift transfer system that basically governs how U.S. dollars move around the world. Well, so long as everyone can use it, that's incredibly valuable. It's a language that everybody speaks. But it's at the point that you're like, all right, well, Iran, you're not allowed to speak this language anymore, that they're like, well, what are we supposed to do then? And so, I mean, like, if you don't have the opportunity to use the thing that is most useful and you have to make something new that's not a choice anybody is going to walk into and be like, oh, this sounds like a fun way to spend the next 10 years. But if that's the only option, then they're going to do it. And once one person has done it, then the next person who comes along, they don't have to invent the wheel. They just use the same thing that the other guy used, right? And this is, I think, how you wind up with this sort of regionally bifurcated future, you know, that I think you're talking about, Andreas, where really what we see are almost like regional dominant currencies, where you're picking sides, you're literally picking sides. And some people will be on both sides. But Again, if the U.S. is like, well, you have to pick either us or them, then some people will pick the U.S. system and the current, you know, better system. But not everybody will. And as we've seen, you know, there will be competition that didn't need to exist except that sort of the abuse of that privilege made it necessary. Otherwise, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Just die?
0: Right. And in that world, a neutral system may emerge. It's unlikely to emerge among the centers of power. It's unlikely that the US, China or Russia will voluntarily choose to use a neutral blockchain based system that they do not control, but which at least nobody controls or where the control is diffuse enough that no one can take over because they'd rather build a system that they partially do control so they can extend their sphere of influence. But that leaves a whole lot of the world where countries that have neither option, they don't have a system they can control, they cannot build a system they can control, and they're cut off from the other systems, they may well choose to use a neutral system simply because it's the only viable option that's left.
3: When we say that a neutral system may win, I think that neutral systems are kind of self-invalidating concepts, which is that, like, neutral systems are, by definition, the minnow, not the shark. That, like, If you take a neutral system, it becomes successful, it becomes the global currency, it then becomes so large, it turns into a beast in and of itself, and is no longer neutral. Those powers, those interests, and those structures themselves become its non-neutrality. I don't know, can you think of an example of something that achieved dominance, yet maintained its neutrality? Because I do think neutrality is just a function of being the little guy.
0: I mean, the ISO 40-foot container, 89 octane gasoline.
3: That's not money. I mean, (laughs) those are structures on how to measure. Those are protocols for transmission. Those aren't the things that are being transmitted. So money is transmission. So for instance, you know, is there an ISO standard on the actual commodity or the thing that's being transmitted rather than the structure or form in which it has to be transmitted? I think those are different things.
0: Well, that's why I think there is an interesting departure from what we've seen in the past, because Bitcoin isn't just money, it is also the protocol. So what happens when the neutral think is both the money and the protocol by which it's transmitted? Can that escape the neutrality-crushing power builds of the past?
3: I mean, Bitcoin has, you know, less people using it than people who bake bread, and it's already fragmented four times.
1: <laughs> okay, I think that's a great point. I want to draw us back to the kind of gold comparison for a second, because I thought that was really interesting. So specifically, like people would trade gold except that Gold is this fundamentally real-world asset, whereas money transmission, if you're not literally sticking a you know piece of gold on a boat and then having that boat go from one place to another you know, with all of the dangers that are entailed with that, if you're representing it digitally, it's that representation that winds up being the problem. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the context of auditing. And I mean, historically, that's been the problem. These systems have been audited, but it doesn't matter because the auditors lie or are co-opted Or aren't being shown kind of everything or, you know, don't have the ability to go in and test every single piece of gold to make sure that it's not actually a tin can in disguise. So I think that's another really interesting thing about this thing that is Bitcoin is that since you, as you just said, Andreas, have the kind of asset and the transmission mechanism all in one place, there is no opportunity. For a kind of malicious actor to get in the middle of that and be like, okay, well, here's how much we say we have, but here's how much we actually have, right? It's transparent and it's obvious. This is something that became, I think, pretty clear to me way back when Greece was having a lot of financial trouble in the early years of this show. And we talked about how Greece as a country had a number of defaults throughout its you know, somewhat recent history. And the question would be, if they were going to leave the euro, which looked like it might actually happen at the time. Who would trust their currency? How would they have a reserve, even if they were reserving gold? And it's interesting to think about that. Well, if you were going to issue your own local drachma, but you were going to have a transparent backing of Bitcoin or something like it that was a blockchain asset, then you actually could have a very transparent reserve system that would not require auditors at all. It would require some knowledge of how many notes were in circulation. But the underlying supply, the kind of backing of it, that would be completely transparent. And that's a very unique thing in the world of you know, global currencies to this point.
0: Well, that's an interesting application of Bitcoin that isn't a medium of exchange, where you're not actually trading the Bitcoin. You're trading the digital drachma, and the digital drachma is one-to-one issued against a verifiable store of Bitcoin. And you're using the transparency of that verifiable reserve in order to build new currencies on the back of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting application. We're basically in uncharted territory right now. I think people can also experience this on a personal level. You know, if you have a bit of savings and you're trying to decide what do I store my savings in? You run out of choices pretty, pretty quickly, especially if you're worried about the context of the environment in which you're saving. So if you're like, OK, so if I have my savings account, I put it in the bank. But what if the bank goes bankrupt or gets raided by the government or there's inflation or there's embezzlement, whatever? What if the deposit or insurance breaks? OK, so I don't want to put it in the bank. Where do I put it? And you very quickly notice that you run through the exact same kind of assessment that happens on an international basis for the choice of a reserve currency. I have a small investment in gold, some of my savings, as well as Bitcoin, right? But then, you know, do I have physical gold? And if I have physical gold, I have to go through the same basic risk analysis for my own savings, So let's say I have $500 that I want to save in gold. Okay, so do I buy a $500 physical gold coin? Who do I buy it from? How is it assayed? Is it real gold or is it tungsten gold plated? Can I test it for myself? Do I have the technical capability to test it for myself? If I do hold the physical gold, where do I hold it? Storage costs, security costs, transportation costs. It's difficult. And the more of it that you want to save, the harder it becomes it's easy to steal. Okay, so all of these problems start mounting. What else could I do? I could do government bonds, I could do securities, and I could do Bitcoin. And if you go through all of these steps, as an individual for your own savings, you quickly run into the exact same problems that every government in the world is trying to solve with exactly the same problems. And that's where you start seeing why Bitcoin is digital gold, why it has these incredible properties. If I hold Bitcoin. I know it's real. I can transport it. I can secure it. And I don't need to worry about someone confiscating it. Already, it's given me a better choice. Maybe I don't hold everything in Bitcoin. Maybe I diversify a bit because it has other risks. Volatility risks, digital network fragmentation risks, etc. But those are different risks. And I'm then diversifying the set of risks. And if I'm making that choice, you can see a possible future where governments make similar choices, at which point they decide to have a bit of dollar, a bit of gold, and a bit of Bitcoin.
1: And that's a wrap on another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Andrea Sam Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine, with music by Jared Rubens and Brent Wood. This episode was edited by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And thanks for listening.